This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's 2022, and the attention economy is going strong. By that, I mean Google, Instagram, Twitter, various things on the internet are ostensibly free to use, except we know they're not. We know that our browsing habits are being recorded and packaged into data sets that are sold, and that our attention itself is also being sold to advertisers. This week's Down to Business focuses on Web 3.0, a new iteration or idea for the World Wide Web that's founded on blockchain technology. That's the technology that enables Bitcoin and holds vast potential. I spoke with two guests who both said blockchain could radically transform the attention economy and the way the internet works. My first guest, Lexa Colon, is the head economist for Consensus, a blockchain software company in New York that's received investments from JP Morgan, MasterCard, and others. My second guest, Victoria Lemieux, co-founded the blockchain research cluster at the University of British Columbia where she's an associate professor at the School of Information. She holds a PhD in archival science. I wanted to know a little more about how blockchain technology is used by corporations and how the technology itself works and what exactly Web 3.0 may look like. Both of my guests said something similar, that blockchain could make the internet a bit more like the real world we inhabit. As always, these interviews were edited for clarity and brevity. Lex, thanks so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. I'm happy to be here. So blockchain has been described by a lot of people as like a classic solution in search of a problem. And I think if that's true, your company is out there helping companies figure out ways to use blockchain to solve their problems. What are some of the coolest things we figured out that blockchain can do? It's a very interesting framing. I think a lot of the world is our, our solutions that are looking for problems. For example, artificial intelligence, which had a 60-year journey to being able to do machine vision and self-driving cars and so on. So I think for some of these really fundamental technologies like blockchain, like AI, like augmented and virtual reality, it, it's a much bigger lift to broad adoption than f- figuring out a really easy consumer button for sharing social media, for example. But when you look at the enterprise space, there's been a lot of different types of progress in the last five years. I, I split them broadly into two camps. The first is how do I put blockchain into my software stack? And usually these are use case around how do I make information more efficient? How do I, how do, how do I make the sharing of information, the anchoring of information about certain accounts or certain parts of the supply chain or certain trades you know, anchored to ledgers and shared among industry participants? You know, one example is a company called All Funds, which structured their entire kind of mutual fund redemption program around blockchain architecture and consensus helped them do that. But then the other direction that companies go into is all about how do I provide a revenue opportunity? How do I create an asset class for my customers 
to access and invest in. And I would say over the last two, three years, we've seen much more around this asset class story, whether that's the asset class of crypto assets or whether it is you know, NFTs and art or music or blockchain gaming. But I would say it's, it's at a high level, these two things, the, the revenue and the cost. Yeah, I mean, you hear so much about supply chain traceability. There's, there's lots of practical uses. You know, real-time accounting could be in the distributed ledger enabled by blockchain. But so far, I haven't really seen any of these use cases rise to prominence. And, and I was wondering if there's some very clear obstacles. I mean, you started off by saying this is a heavy lift. Yeah, I, I think it's also perhaps not something for you or me or the average person to see. You know, so very few people, for example, know what a core banking system is or understand the difference between a payment gateway and a payment processor or understand the uh, supply chain behind chips that go in, into semiconductors. And it, it isn't something for people to feel or touch or really understand. Rather, it's an architecture and it's a protocol. People don't understand how the internet works, but end of the day, they watch YouTube. And in a similar way, blockchain is an architecture for how value is packaged and shared and stored, right? So if you're on the internet and you encounter a hyperlink, you, you don't have emotions about the hyperlink, about it being you know revolutionary or good or bad or, or whatever. It's just the hyperlink is what the internet is made from. And it's, it's this fantastic kind of collapse for information exchange. Similarly, the token, right now, all these people have so many emotions about tokens. Uh, they want to regulate them. They want to unregulate them. You know, tokens are dangerous. Tokens are boring. And that's all well and good, but it's just a hyperlink for actual value. And I think we're going to come to a place where people will be issuing hundreds, if not thousands of tokens per year. Companies will be doing the same and will understand this to be an architecture that people use. The, the other thing to point to is just there's 180 million addresses on Ethereum. There's probably 500,000 addresses all in, in Web3 these days. And so a person might have multiple addresses. This is hundreds of millions of people are using these systems. Perhaps because they're so abstract, it's a little bit harder to get a handle on, you know, like, how do you touch it in the real world? Right. My last guest who I interviewed about blockchain was very insistent that we shouldn't think of it as just money, that, it, that it's a platform. And the idea I kind of walked away with is that eventually we could all have a blockchain identity, which we can choose to link to, say, our doctors if they want to see our healthcare records or our bank account when we want to buy something. But the key... I think is that it's going to change the architecture of the internet such that, you know, right now, if you go onto Facebook, they have the servers and they have your data and you're essentially the customer. And with blockchain, is it the case that the client server architecture paradigm is going to shift so that it's like you're part of the server and, and you have control over how your data is collected? Yeah, I, I think it's a throwback to actually a much more human time. You can think of you know the pendulum swing and the yin and the yang and the dialectic between one extreme and the next. And with the internet that we have now, Web 2.0, it does a lot of things for us that we like. It gives us lots of media that is free. It gives us the ability to educate, to share, to to participate with each other in these spaces. But you know we've kind of gone to the extreme of what this paradigm can give us. And the answer for what it gives us is essentially digital feudalism. 
you know, everything is free as long as you're in the Lord's castle. And in that paradigm, you know, you don't have any of the things that you use uh, or any of the things that you rely on. There is no cash or anything in your digital account other than a bunch of debt between different companies. You know, there is no image or book that you own from Amazon or from Google because these are just things that are being served up to you. And maybe that's okay, but we also see the downsides of that type of world where there's no human economy on that chassis. The only economy we have is to package human attention into product and then to crank that into a billion person machine algorithm in order to sell advertising, which creates all sorts of social phenomena we, we seem not to like. And so Web3, which is which is this pushback against the Web2 paradigm, it really is authentically trying to do something different. You know, and it's very hard to communicate that through a noise that people everywhere have and, and the emotions they have around, you know, oh, what if I put these things at risk? Is somebody going to trick me and so on and so forth, as well as the framing that entities that are challenged by a different paradigm create in order to dissuade its adoption, right? So I think this idea of self-sovereignty versus the sovereign state very challenging, right? Because once you pull all of your money into a place where you hold it, so for example, if everybody in the world only had paper cash in their wallet, there would be no banks because there would be just cash in your in your wallets. And and this is an equivalent to some of the things that blockchain-based architecture proposes in the sense that you actually are able to own and control digital goods. And this is an incredible breakthrough on its own, right? Because in our existing internet, there's no scarcity around any digital object. So if I send you a picture or a copy of a book, it's worth nothing because we can have endless copies of that. And again, that might be good, but it has implications. Whereas in the Web3 paradigm, if I send you a Bitcoin or if I send you an NFT or some other digital asset associated with my labor, like you will have it and I won't anymore. And that digital scarcity on its own is quite revolutionary to what you can do with the web. And, I, and again, I think what it does is take us to much more human time in terms of the scale of the economy, in terms of the types of exchange and barter that we can do. It makes much more tangible and understandable what we should do, for example, with, you know, with digital paintings or with music or with stock records or with stable coins, crypto dollars. And so I think we are indeed in this kind of like reformation of what the internet does and what it stands for. Huh. It's that idea of the internet as like a giant copy machine. I want to just go back for a minute to something you were saying that, you know, there's already been a lot of investment, but it's not necessarily for us to notice. How often are we already using blockchain under the hood, but we just have no idea? That's a great question. There is a deep behavioral shift that some people go through when they start to use blockchain-based computing and applications. You know, I, I talked about digital scarcity. The other leg of the stool of this transformation stool outside of just like, oh, I have a Bitcoin to trade back and forth is the idea of computation, of decentralized computation. So to the earlier point of software is running on your laptop and then software is running on you know some server farm in the cloud that you access through your phone. The next step after the cloud are these decentralized networks where lots and lots of nodes run software and then agree on what the true output of that software is. That's quite fundamental because it allows 
computational networks while trusting nobody, while being very adversarial towards each other to mathematically come to a truth about whatever their computation is, whether that's a trade or whether that's a creative action or whether that's some sort of social organization. You know, these computational networks can run software and then agree across all the computers about what the truth is on these digital objects. And that's quite special. What would be an example of that so that people understand, not in abstract terms, but in real terms, like what would that do for us? I mean, I can just, des- I can describe the motion by which it happens, right? So if, if I send you a digital asset, whether that's a Bitcoin or whether it's a digital equity, knowing this payment happens is not trivial, right? In the Visa world, in the Google Pay world, in, in the banking ACH world, in all of these cases, maybe the information will be sent in a message or it might be faxed or it might be handed by one person to another, or worst case, it might be emailed. You can imagine email at the, in, at the scale of billions of transactions. And the systems that do this are, I mean, the technical term for them, I think, is janky. Right? They're 50 years old, if not older, in their architecture. And so when I send you something from one place to another, from one account to another, when I send that, basically, a thousand computers will all check whether that transaction happened. And through fairly complex mathematics, there are rewards for doing this correctly, and then there are penalties for doing it wrong. You know, and so the sort of like topology of this network will generate truth if there are lots and lots of participants running the same validation software or mining software. And so in the case of Bitcoin, it's for something simple, like I'm just sending a thing I have to you. In the case of Ethereum, it's a lot more interesting in that actually it's not just like I'm sending you a thing, but it's also applications that run on top. So for example, to to create a picture or take action in a video game or to provide your signature under you know, some philosophical written document or political document, and you want to commit your signature that you're that you're signing uh, or that you're notarizing something. And anytime these transactions across all these applications happen, they are prioritized, and for some fee, they're added to the computational history of this network. And again, all these nodes, all these different people, will run the same software, and then we'll come to an agreement about you know a single strand of what the truth is. You, you can kind of think of, you know, the the low-key TV show with all the metaverses, right? Like branching out uh, in the time continuum. And what the blockchain network does is it, it literally manufactures the truth, the, the correct time continuum in which the things that have happened are authoritative, you know, and that's expensive and mathematically complex to do. Okay. And I think the question you were starting to answer when I interrupted you was how much of this is actually under the hood and we just don't know it. But I'm guessing that it hasn't really penetrated much of what we use on the internet yet. Yeah, so this is the tricky thing, right? Some people go all the way toward adopting the usage patterns of Web3. So they install MetaMask. MetaMask now has 20 million monthly active users, which you know, relative to a Facebook is certainly small, but relative to a Facebook after three years, it's certainly not small. Hmm. This is the browser extension that your company came up with in order to create an Ethereum wallet and use applications on Ethereum, right? Yes. You can't use any of these networks without having a digital self that provides your authority to applications that want to interact with you. So like nobody knows you unless you tell them who you are, which is the way it should be. And 
who you are is is secure in a way that's very different from you creating a username and password on somebody else's servers. And so creating an address with a wallet like a MetaMask or, or another one is your way to basically using any of these apps. That's the, that's the starting point. And you can kind of think of that behavior as similar to when Google Sheets came out. You know, everyone's got Microsoft Office and there's a bunch of weirdos who are starting to use Google Sheets in the cloud. And the browser's slow and it's inconvenient and it's quirky. And so why, why not just use the thing that's already installed on your computer? And of course, today, although people continue to use Office on their computers, lots and lots of people are collaborating natively in the cloud. And so that's a behavior shift. You don't have to go all the way to installing MetaMask and learning how to use it, although, of course, that's a, uh, I'd say, a cleaner way to be. But there are companies like Coinbase, there are companies like Revolut or Robinhood or Square Cash, where you, you would experience a Web2 familiar motion of a username password. And then the company sitting on top of these blockchains essentially has accounts on your behalf. So, you know, that's that's a place where you might not know that you are using blockchain-based software, but it's already happening. And then if you go to the institutional world, you know, JP Morgan, which is uh, an investor in consensus and a partner of ours across a couple of different things, for example, has kind of wholesale banking rails that run on a private permissioned Ethereum variant on which they have a bunch of fintech software for their network that is being used for, for money movement. You know, and so again, like that's not an infrastructure that normal people come in contact with day to day. But I think in the enterprise world, what you're going to see is these more legacy kind of value transfer systems, which are usually different for payments, investments, banking, insurance, and so on, starting to collapse and get rewritten on top of the open source blockchain networks. And the main uh, motivation for them, just in brief, is that this is more secure against hacking, it's faster, it's cheaper? I think the motivation for institutions is complex. And as I mentioned, you know, there's sort of different games they play. There's the cost game, and then there's the revenue game. The revenue game is easier to get internal traction on for uh, for a company because it's always easier to say, we're going to bring in customers who want to access digital assets, whether they want to buy tokens or, you know, in the case of something like Nike or Adidas or Marvel, right? People want to access NFTs. So all of, all of that is generating revenue for a firm. In the case of, I'm a, I'm a company that wants to transform my infrastructure and I want to replace parts of my internal software stack with some version of a distributed ledger or permission network. Yes, the answers for those are sort of the consultant speak of it's more efficient, it's more secure, it lowers our cost base, it is much more modern, and so it integrates into new types of things. But that's certainly, that, that's a heavy lift, not just because it's complex to install a new rail and then organize an industry around it. It's also complex because you have these massive sort of sunk fixed costs into the infrastructure that you're already using. You know, So if you've got roads all over your country optimized for horses, it might be you know, doubly difficult to pave them over for cars that haven't yet come. Right. And it just made me think, you can find a lot of big companies that have invested and I just have wondered, what are the chances that blockchain gets integrated with legacy systems and doesn't quite reach the full potential that people envision? 
I think that all of us are grappling around in the fog of our imagination for what that potential could be and is. It's incontrovertible that crypto and blockchain-based unicorns are being minted every other month. You know, And so if the capital markets are sort of your barometer for value and truth, then it all, we are already in a place you know, where Coinbase is worth three times as much as Deutsche Bank. So there's, def, there's already lots and lots of evidence of sort of this blockchain stuff having reached a potential that is orders of magnitude more than, than people would have expected. But I think, you know, I started with, with the idea that we're really in the fog of our imagination because my guess is we're definitely not going to reach whatever point people are talking about now, but instead we're going to reach something both further and different. That is probably going to be more profound and more powerful, but also will be harder to get to because, you know, from my perspective, this, this is a technology that is at such a base level of technological progress. You know, it is, it is such a sort of like a primitive step change rather than like a feature improvement that, that it's going to take many adjacent steps to really unlock its full potential. You know, I'll give you a toy example, something like Uber. You know, so Uber functions because we have GPS in the sky. Without GPS, we would not have Uber. The cars would not know where to go because the phones would not have maps. And so I'm sure that nobody ever, when they were subsidizing the national project of launching all these satellites for the military, were thinking about convenient taxis and the prices of taxi medallions. And so I think for, for blockchain networks, it's one of these things where we can see two or three years out what the answers will be, which is right now it, it is unlocking creator communities where people can make art and monetize it. It's unlocking brands and distribution to fans and the organizations of fans into these sort of digital tribes. And then similarly, on the finance side, it's the, the rerouting and the re, rewriting of all the fintech software that got, got put into digital storefronts, websites and phones and so on, and rewriting that over the next couple of years to be anchored to decentralized finance networks. That's a chunky amount of work. You know, it's, it's trillions of enterprise value in my mind. But the, the things that we're going to open up on the way, I think, will be far greater than that. All right. Lex, thanks a lot for coming on Down to Business. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was Lex Sokolin, head economist for Consensus, a blockchain software company in New York. Now we're going to pause a minute for a short break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. My next guest is Victoria Lemieux, co-founder of the Blockchain Research Hub at the University of British Columbia, where she's an associate professor in the School of Information. Vicky, thanks so much for coming on down to business to talk to me today. It's a pleasure. So there's a lot of money pouring into blockchain and related technologies. Do you think that this technology is getting overhyped? Or do you think it really is starting to change the internet and maybe the world even as we know it? Yeah, uh, that's a, a great question, of course, but I don't think it's being overhyped. And the reason being is the way that I look at 
blockchain technology. You know, we know from Bitcoin, you know, that it's a ledger. It's a distributed ledger. And a ledger is a form of a record. And if you think about the world that we live in, record keeping touches everything. So if you think about the potential for this technology, it's only limited by, you know, what doesn't involve record keeping. And basically, I would argue that everything we do involves some kind of record keeping. In a complex society, we need record keeping to organize ourselves. So I don't think it's overhyped. I think it doesn't necessarily deliver in all cases yet on what the promise and the potential is. But I, I think the, the potential is quite huge and transformative. What like do you imagine could be sort of the potential of blockchain? You know, fundamentally, what I think blockchain gives us in, a, in the digital world is something that we had lost from the pre-digital world. So when we think about records and we think about the way that we capture information, we know in the digital world, one of the great transformations was the ability to extract information or knowledge from what were fixed records. And that gave us the world of big data. And with the world of big data, we have leveraged that through artificial intelligence techniques into all kinds of amazing value where data has become, you know, quote unquote, the new oil, you know, now the, the, the old oil kind of idea because it's been around for a while, right? And we, we've seen the potential. But at the same time, what we lost from all of that was fixity. So by being able to extract information and, and knowledge, we, we lost the uniqueness of this information. And as it turns out, there's a lot of value in having fixity as well. So just think about digital cash, which was the whole idea behind Bitcoin. You know, in the digital world, we couldn't guarantee that we couldn't we could prevent a double spend because in the digital world, it's super easy to copy, right? And make multiple copies. And, and w- once we figured that out, once Bitcoin solved that problem, then we could realize the value of having a, a actual digital cash or digital assets that can't be replicated. And that's, you know, what the NFT value is all about as well, that we all of a sudden, you know, online art can't easily be copied. We have a way to assert ownership rights and make claims to assets that are unique and limited. And we know what happens to price when we have limited supplies of things, right? Price, huge demand, price will go up. That's interesting that you you reference big data and sort of the internet seemed like it created this way to sort of consolidate all these uh, maybe records, right? Like I think of big data, I think of like people's browsing habits and their spending habits and it sort of created this new stream of information. So blockchain progresses that how? It makes it a further consolidation of information? So all of this information, right, that, that's being gathered um, about us, you know, that, that information is, can be copied multiple, multiple times. Now, it's, it's difficult for, you know, the, the average person or even the average organization to get their hands on, you know, all of the vast quantities of information that, you know, Facebook, Google and, and you know, the others have acquired. And, you know, that's where they're generating value and then they're selling that on to advertisers and so on. That practice, though, you know, and the ability to, to gather up so much information and, you know, the, the, the very ability to copy that information has generated a couple of problems for us. You know, in the world of big data, the ability to extract and manipulate data 
uh, which is what artificial intelligence is all about, to transform it from something that isn't uh, as meaningful and useful for us into something that is meaningful and productive for us, which has been hugely beneficial, has a downside in that it is easy to manipulate data. So if you look at you know, some of the things like deep fakes, for example, or the way that, you know, some information can be altered. There was a a hack of the European Medicines Agency, which extracted data uh, relating to vaccines, and then the data was later altered and then released. And the, you know, purported purpose of that was to foment uncertainty about vaccine efficacy and destabilize, you know, the argument goes targeting Western democracies to destabilize them. So in a world of big data, our data are very vulnerable to manipulation because they, you know, that's the whole purpose of it. We can extract information for the purpose of manipulating for good, which is, you know, the value that we can get from, let's say, artificial intelligence that's targeting new cancer treatments or something like that. But at the same time, there's the dark side, the deep fakes, etc. And what blockchain can do is give us back fixity of the data. The The whole idea behind blockchain is that because of the difficulty of actually going back and manipulating this distributed ledger, both because of the way that, you know, blocks, for example, in some types of distributed ledgers, blockchain specifically, um, are cryptographically linked together, but also their distributed nature where the distributed copies are matched up by this consensus mechanism that is very difficult to manipulate, you have this guaranteed integrity, at least at the bit structure level, of of these records. And so we can place trust in those records. And so in in some of the projects that I've seen, that capability is, is being used to secure, for example, evidence of human rights violations. Uh, where there would be, a, you know, typically attacks on some human rights agencies and agencies involved in the protection of this information to destroy, bring down servers, manipulate the data, etc., to undermine it, and so that it won't be used in in future human rights trials. That's just, you know, one example of where that capability is being used. You can see the utility, like as you're talking, you do make all these points which make one think, okay, blockchain creates this public ledger, which could really address this misinformation problem, which seems to be getting worse by the year. But you've also written about blockchain from the other perspective, that it creates a risk, that that blockchain aims to change the way that we establish the authenticity of records. And right now, we basically rely on trusted third parties, whether it's a bank or a government or a notary. And blockchain is a system-based mode, I guess. But, but you've written that it's not foolproof. Yeah, exactly. That's right. It, it has a lot of promise, but it has its limitation. So for example, if we talk about integrity, integrity at the bit structure level is... I think well taken care of by by most uh, blockchain and distributed ledgers, and you know to varying degrees. What is bit the bit level? You just mean like in the computer coding part? Exactly. So that you know the the actual bits and bytes of a particular file, you can detect whether they've been altered. But as archivists know, and I'm trained you know in archival science, that's my background. We actually have to make minute changes to, at the code structure level to actually preserve information 
for the long term. And when we're talking about long term, we're not thinking, you know, one or two or even five years. We're thinking 50 years, centuries, thousands of years, right? So over time, of course, technology advances and the format in which information was created and the technologies used to create information will advance as well. So archivists know that we have to make slight transformations and blockchains are very fragile. Their security guarantees will break if the hash values don't resolve uh, to the same thing. And that is very fragile because it doesn't allow for these minute transformations. But I'm also kind of, you know, bullish in the long term and that I think that, you know, once we can identify these problems through engineering, through good design, we have the potential to address those. So I think about project, you know, being undertaken at the University of Surrey a couple of years ago, they did some interesting work on how to use artificial intelligence to detect when those minute transformations were uh, allowable, authentic, needed for digital preservation versus something that would be identified, you know, uh, with some kind of a hack. Where I see the danger is that blockchain technology has emerged out of, in some cases, kind of computer science and the world of software. And the world of software has not really had access to archival science principles. And they haven't been thinking about archival science principles in the design. So take, for example, NFTs. You know, any archivist worth their salt will tell you that, you know, you have to preserve what we call the archival bond the essential link between the digital representation of the the thing, the record, and the thing itself. And so in a case of an NFT, the actual digital asset is often stored off-chain. In a centralized platform, oftentimes, that is not owned by the person who has actually purchased the ownership rights to the asset, they're totally reliant on this third-party platform to render their digital asset. Then there's maybe the platform that they're using to trade their NFT, like an OpenSea. And if the link between that transaction, the trading transaction for their NFT and the actual NFT, the, the platform that holds the NFT itself breaks, which it frequently does, essential archival bond is very fragile. You own nothing, essentially. There's nothing there because the transaction connects to nothing. And, but computer scientists and, and software developers haven't traditionally worried about things like archival bonds because they haven't been trained to think like archivists. Right. Pause for a second because we're what we're talking about really is information and how it gets preserved. And, and blockchain sort of, it creates this record, but we know from like Ethereum, which is, I guess, maybe the second biggest cryptocurrency next to Bitcoin, that the record can be changed. There's the hard fork, right, where a bunch of Ethereum was stolen and they just sort of went in as computer programmers and erased that fraud and returned people's money, which is a sort of form of justice. But it does seem to underscore that the person who controls the blockchain technology will wield an enormous amount of power over information and records that we have access to. That is that is very true. There's two aspects that we have to think about when we're thinking about the immutability of blockchains. Yes, who is in charge of the protocol rules, the institutional, what I call institutional rules of the game? So like in the world that we're used to, the world where decisions are made to settle disputes by the law, 
we have procedures that allow us to our society to create new laws, you know, through democratic processes in Canada and so on. And then we have the courts that actually interpret those rules and make decisions and so on. Uh, It's been working for like hundreds and hundreds of years, right, in the case of many societies. So this is new. Algorithmic law or law's code is is new. And it it hasn't really evolved to the point where it is it can it can handle situations that are out of the norm, which the Dow exploit was. It it was basically a a recursion problem in in a, in a smart contract that was not written as it should have been. You know, I don't know if the person who wrote or persons who wrote that smart contract actually maybe they knew what they do were doing, uh, maybe they didn't. With many smart contracts, they they kind of like because uh, you know at least a couple of years ago when I was looking at smart contract security, a lot of the smart contract coders were just copying other people's smart contract codes and then kind of like tinkering with it and adjusting it. So you could get like replication of smart contract security errors or, you know, errors that could lead to security vulnerabilities echoing through all these different uh, smart contracts. And anyway, to, to get back to the point, institutional rules of the game are established by, you know, those who are making decisions about the protocol, the core of the code of the protocol itself. And each blockchain tends to have like a different process for, for doing that. You know, with Bitcoin, there's Bitcoin improvement protocols, something similar for Ethereum. And the developers will debate and discuss this and, and you know, maybe there'll be votes on it. Different communities operate differently, just like different countries operate differently in terms of how they decide on their rules. And then once those rules are decided, the protocol software is updated. And then it's up to each distributed node in, in it, say, like a permissionless blockchain like in Ethereum, to decide whether they're going to update their node to the new client software. If they decide not to update their client software and the new client software doesn't accept transactions that are running the old client software, then you have something called a hard fork. So it's not quite as simple as like one guy makes a decision and boom, everything changes. It's a little bit more complicated in a distributed community, but nevertheless, the core developers have an outsized influence on the direction of the code through the debates that happen. Whoever is in control of that code base has an outsized weight on the decision-making and the future of that, that protocol. You have quite a few variations in the design of these protocols. And when you're looking at like, okay, what one would I put my money on or invest in? These are important things to understand. Of course, yeah. We all know how much corporations value data and use data. I've heard blockchain described as sort of a next generation database. And there are already several corporate uses for this. I'm wondering if you have any sense of how this is likely to develop, like whether one main blockchain technology will emerge, maybe just what the current state of affairs is. Well, getting at what you're talking about in terms of corporations, you know, there's two two main flavors, you know, of, of blockchains often talked about. There's the big permissionless ones like Bitcoin and Ethereum, and then there's the permissioned one. So what the um, permissioned ones are, they involve some kind of identity 
usually you are authenticating to that network. And, and that requires you have to identify yourself in order to do that as a participant in the network in the same way as in a corporate system, a corporate database, you know, that you're, you have to be authorized to use that database. So this is the main difference. So that most of the organizations that are, you know, using blockchain as the new distributed database are using permissioned versions of blockchain technology. And I still think that there's value in that because the use case that you're seeing the most in that area is supply chain management, where consortia of, of organizations that are involved in a supply chain are banning together by having a shared ledger that gives them common knowledge of where things are in the supply chain. It creates new efficiencies in that supply chain. And so in the old world where each organization had its own records and had to do a lot of reconciliation between here's my version of the truth and here's your version of the truth, where that particular asset, like let's say it's you know wild salmon or something like that, sits and, and you know can I trust that it's actually wild salmon and it's not farm salmon? Did it come from where you said it, it came from? A person. We're still trusting a person basically to authentically enter that information into the blockchain. Yeah, in some cases, in some cases, but in some cases, it's also being um, linked with sensor technology. So obviously with like wild salmon, that's a bit more difficult. So there is this challenge of how do you represent and create an authentic link between real world things or assets and their representation on blockchains or in the digital world. And some of this is being done through sensor technology. And, but yeah, you can at least identify the source. And then in the case of artwork, for example, so artists traditionally have not benefited from increasing value of their own artworks in the art marketplace. It gets traded and it goes up in value and so on and so forth. And, but there's the potential for you know some of that value to return to the artist and give them an, an opportunity to, to realize the value of their own asset. And by the way, the same thing holds true for individuals. All that data that's being collected from our browser habits, that's an asset as well. Those are original assets that basically come back to us. You know, they, they, they represent us, and, but none of the value can never accrues to us. So with blockchain, there's and this concept of data unions there's the possibility of it accruing to us through micropayments back to us every time that data gets, you know, when we share it. And then subsequently, if it were to be reshared. And, um, but, you know, one of the things that I worry about is privacy. And so building blockchain technology that not only allows us to benefit financially from this trading, but also preserves our privacy when we want it to be preserved can be like if it's my health data, the benefit of the data might just come from aggregating my data with everything else. They don't need to know that it's my data specifically. They just need the data. And so maybe a personally identifiable information or a way to link it back to my legal or natural world identity isn't necessary in some cases. And so these are the things that I, I think we also have to worry about in this world, like the metaverse, for example, where, you know, which is going to be powered, at least in part, by blockchain technology. I think having self-sovereign identities that are privacy-preserving, that give us portability to move between platforms where we own our identities, we own our data, is extremely important to protect our freedom 
as uh, as as people, you know, living now in a physical world, but increasingly in a in a virtual world as well. Yeah. Well, Vicky, this has been an incredibly enlightening conversation, and I really appreciate you coming on the show. Oh, you're most welcome. Thank you for having me. It's been great. That was Victoria Lemieux, Associate Professor at the University of British Columbia's School of Information. That's it for this week's show. Thank you all for listening and your feedback and support. A special thanks for Bryce Hall for producing the show, Joe Hood and Yudula Hussein for editing, and Pamela Heaven and Victoria Wells for web support. I'm Gabe Friedman, and I'll be back next week. But until then, you can find all your business news at financialpost.com or in any of our five weekly newsletters covering energy, the economy, finance, investing, and the workplace.